got to know Albie during our time at Newcastle University and found myself immediately drawn to his immature sense of humour. <laughs> this proved to not only be the similarity that we shared. Over the years, I've been mistaken for Albie numerous times. Not only by family friends of his remarking how much I've changed since I last saw him, but more recently by a reporter in Rwanda who was looking for an interview with the ever-busy Mr Shale. This was an interview I was more than happy to give in his stead. And it is Rwanda that would be the setting of where our friendship would strengthen and blossom as we volunteered and worked together on the project that would very much define Albie's life so far. A project that would serve as the perfect homage to his late father, Christopher. Building Rwanda its first ever cricket stadium. Today, Albie is an irritatingly overachieving young businessman. The youngest of three siblings and a proud uncle. Albie lives in London, but spends the majority of his working life travelling around Europe and Africa. What he actually does is still a mystery to me, but given he's explained it to me many times and I still can't understand it, it probably means it's quite impressive and intellectual. This week I'm joined by my extraordinary ordinary guest, Mr Albie Shale. Thank you for joining me. Hey. So, Albs, let's get into it, basically. Uh, although you are the only child to your mum, Nikki, and dad, Christopher, mm-hmm. I know that you're incredibly close to your brother and sister, Hello mm-hmm. and Natalia with whom you grew up with in Oxfordshire. So can you just tell us a little bit about what it was growing up in that little family unit? We were very much uh, one family. My my brother and sister, although my father was not their blood father, he was very much a role model for them. And my mother and father were very focused on making sure that we were a united family. So um, although theoretically they are only my halves they very much are my full and it was great I had a wonderful childhood growing up with great you know great friends great family and in a lovely part of the world so yeah, it was um it was a wonderful time in my life I was going to go on to mention how yeah you're much closer to those two than I've seen from normal stepbrothers and stepsisters and I think their relationship with your dad was also way beyond stepfather they called him dad he, they were his kids as much as as much as you were, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think if you talk to them about it, they are a lot of who they are because of the sort of person my my father was, and their their moral compass. I think is very much influenced by who he was, and yeah, it's it's hard to explain, primarily because um, I don't want to be in any way harsh on on their father, but he. He was absent and he was not living in this country and my father stood up and my brother and sister are who they are today because of who my father was. Just out of interest, how old were they when your dad sort of became that father figure? Four and six, so very young. And, um, you know, that's a formative age for young kids and, um, you know, that explains, I think, why we were able to have such a united family and how or why my dad played such a big role in their lives. Yeah. At the start of this podcast, I'd like to touch briefly on the circumstances surrounding the parents passing away. Mm-hmm. Now, in your father's case, it's important to say he wasn't sick, therefore came as a surprise, and it wasn't he, he had no time to, to prepare for it. He actually was sick, but we didn't know, interestingly. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's come to light, well, it came to light um, straight afterwards, um, after the autopsy, but... Um, we haven't really discussed it with many people because it was just much easier to say heart attack. But it was actually heart disease that he'd had for some time, but we didn't know about it. Interestingly, I've seen um, things that he'd written um, that suggested that he knew he was ill, which has played um, a lot of torment on my mind. My mum had no idea. We don't know whether he knew he was ill or not, but it was certainly very unexpected. I 
you know, it was, uh, I'm sure we'll get into parts of it, but, you know, to happen in the circumstances in which it did, you know, you can't prepare yourself for um, that sort of, you know, scenario. You mean you've read things that suggested that he knew in letters, or did he keep a diary, or what, what was that? I managed to get his laptop afterwards, and, um, you know, when you're in that reflective moment, uh, you know, you're looking for ways to reconnect, you scour people's laptops, and it's amazing what you find. I'm sure if I read yours, I'd find some pretty incriminating sure. things. Sure, yeah. Um, and unfortunately, there wasn't anything incriminating on his, but it just um, emphasised what what a man he was, how much he loved his family, how much he loved his friends, his phenomenal wit. And um, I found some letters that um, and some some speech drafts which. Um, suggested some strange sort of cryptic things primarily uh, predicting what would happen in the next election in right. 2015 so this was 2011 when he died and he said David Cameron would win a majority in 2015 and I will be looking down from the stars really wow so yeah maybe he did know but you think he and Nick and Nicky your mum had no idea so possible. And he always used to say he would die young. Yeah. Um, not to me, but to mum. And always said to mum, "You must remarry because I'm. I don't have. Uh, you know, I'm not the sort of person that's going to be around when I'm eighty or ninety. Yeah. Well, before we get into to that the day itself, I think I, I want to make some more sense to start with this, which is that I noticed shortly after your dad passed away, and we went away that he. Um, so many people mentioned the unique bond that you and your dad shared. I remember even speaking to fathers saying, what I have with my son is not anything close to what you, what you and Christopher had. And you were clearly incredibly close and shared experiences such as both getting your tongues pierced on the same day, which I know really pissed off your mum. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship that you two shared? Yeah, sure. I think he it would do him a disservice and he wouldn't like me to say that we were best friends because he always said that that's not a role a parent should play. But we shared a mischievous sense of humour. We shared a love for cricket, a love for music, a love for Africa. And um, I looked up to him uh, hugely, I guess, like every son does to their father. But in my eyes, he could never put a foot wrong. And he was the he was he was the glue of the family and i i love the fact that every every time you had a question he would have the answer every time you weren't sure what to do he would um not give you his opinion but go and sleep on it and then come back um with this sort of beautifully choreographed piece of advice that emphasized that he was a sage individual who genuinely felt a responsibility when anyone asked him a question to make sure he gave it some proper thought and you know the fact he had 1500 people at his funeral I think emphasizes what sort of man he was every single person who met him was left feeling good about themselves and you know that's people who he didn't know imagine you know how you felt growing up with someone like that yeah that was became so apparent to me when we went to Rwanda was the amount of people that he touched even if you met them once, it was a crazy connection you have with, with getting on with humans, really. But that, yeah, that idea of music is something I wanted to talk about. So, he passed away at Glastonbury, 
which was very much a thing that you guys did every year. You guys went and he was passionate about it. Um, and I know that your memories of both that day and the, the following few months are, have been some days of extraordinary clarity. I think the day of it, I remember you say you know, almost every minute of it. And then I spent a fair amount of time with you in the next three or four months when now you've got almost no memories of those trips that we made together. I remember parts of our trip to Rwanda, which was a couple of weeks afterwards, because yeah. um, I had some really good memories from that trip. My 21st, on the hand, in Rwanda, in Kenya, I couldn't tell you much. Yeah. A lot of the, the time at university as well, I, um, I, don't f- I don't feel that I could regurgitate because... Um, you're in a sort of a strange state where you're alive, but you're not really, the lights are on, but no one's at home sort of thing. And I think partly that's a coping mechanism where your your mind is so preoccupied with uh, trauma and with one single subject that it's just overloaded. You know, the fridge is full constantly. And I can relive, you know, the, the 12 hours that I was looking for him and... Every single moment um, up until, you know, I was told that he had had a heart attack. And um, sometimes I relive it, but, and more recently I am reliving it because it's a really good way to actually finally come to terms with it all. But it is, it's fascinating how the brain works and how you go into survival mode without even intentionally flicking a switch, how... Everything becomes um, focused on one thing, which is survival and making sure your family are all right. And a lot of the time I felt like I was drifting through other parts of my life, especially university, because it just wasn't important to me. And um, yeah, it's it's amazing how the brain and the body works. So this ha- did this happen, was it the first summer of university after your first year or was it after the second year? In between first and second. Yeah, so the first summer. And... So do you think it changed you in that one of the things you then focus on, like you said, is, right, what's important to me? And suddenly your character changes as a result of that. Do you think you were a different person then, the person you are now? A hundred percent, yeah. Uh, someone perversely said to me the other day, it was the best and worst thing that's ever happened to me, which I thought was a strange um, thing to say, but it makes you reflect. And it was because I was drifting through life. I was very content doing very little with my life and frankly not engaging with the world in the way that I sort of want to now and um, I was having a good time but I wasn't I wasn't quite sure who I was because I guess lots of people at that age don't um, but I I think primarily because I spent a lot of time at school uh, very happy in you know in a uh, in a way of life that um, didn't require me to really push myself and the start of university was probably the same life had never really encouraged me or persuaded me to really take a risk or to push myself because I could just coast through because of the the fact I won the postcode lottery and you know I was born in the UK and I went to a good school and and so on and so forth so when it all comes crashing down you're forced to pick yourself up and figure out who you are and what you want and what's important and I had to do that pretty quickly because um, everything at home was pretty pretty manic, pretty um, peculiar. And as I say, you sort of fall into survival mode. And so it was it was a life-changing moment. And I culled a lot of things from my life. And 
it's been interesting talking to some of my really good friends over that period because I I moved away from small talk about inane you know shit frankly that I didn't feel was important and I, I didn't judge people for having those conversations but I just didn't want anything to do with them because it was so difficult for me to process things that were uh, you know mundane and suggestive of just everyday life because for me everyday life was not obtainable and at the time I never felt like it could be was that something you were conscious that was happening at the time like I can feel myself now becoming more driven more focused less wishy-washy less cruising through life wishy-washy I think that was your words not mine sure (laughs) I mean we're just having a conversation with the head of having a conversation making small talk this is a waste of time was it a conscious decision to do you know what's happening I feel like I'm changing at this stage or do you come out of it and suddenly go oh I'm now this kind of person um, more comfortable with I, I, no I don't think I don't think it's a conscious decision to you know to change your approach entirely but I think you I think it's 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 something that comes naturally to you because you're in survival mode and you realise that right what's important is family and it is you know myself and making sure I'm okay and I'm dealing with this and that's it really you know, otherwise, if you're not looking after those two things, then um, who knows what, what could happen. And I think it's it's your subconscious taking over. And now looking back, it's easy to reflect and say, you know what, I can, I can see how it changed and how I subconsciously withdrew from certain situations and um, certain uh, friends. Not because I didn't love them, but because... I couldn't be around them in the phase that they were at their life. And also because you're, it's very difficult to have fun in that, in that period of your life because you feel it's a disservice to, you know, the deceased. And then you realize actually quite the opposite. It's just a process. Everyone goes through it, but just at different speeds, I think. I guess a lot of people say that when you go through grief, you should throw yourself into work and people do throw themselves into work. Mm. I guess, from that side of point of view, people say, oh, he's throwing himself into work. Perhaps it's a coping mechanism. Perhaps it's, I need to keep busy. Well, I guess the way that you came at it was actually, no, this has happened in my life and now I'm super focused. So I'm throwing into myself at work. It seems like I'm throwing myself into work. It's only because I'm more focused and have valued this more in life rather than a coping mechanism. Or is it a combination of the two? I think it depends on where you are in your life. I imagine if I was in a good place at work and I was doing something that I genuinely loved, then I probably would have distracted myself that way. Mum spent 15 months, 16 months building our dream house and that was the only thing that she focused on, um, aside from you know making sure the kids were all right. My brother um, hit the deck for seven, eight weeks and was inconsolable and then went back to work and focused purely on making sure his business was successful. And my sister was focused on work as well and on um, her family. I was at university. I had nothing to um, make me feel good about myself. Because frankly, you know, university, you're having a lot of fun with your friends, but it's not something you sort of wake up and you feel like, you know what, I've achieved something today. I feel like um, I'm moving in the right direction. Um, You know, no matter how many times or how many Jaeger bombs you drink, you know, it's not going to make you feel good about yourself. And the degree for me... Um, was not enough of a distraction because I was not in a phase of my life where I could be distracted enough by you know, essays and 
curricula. And so when the Rwanda project came along, that was that was my saving grace. That was something that I could throw myself in and completely distract myself. I think I found those university days as hard as um, the hardest days of my life, frankly, because I couldn't find something to fully distract me. I tried drugs, I tried alcohol, neither really worked. And yeah, when the Rwanda thing came along as an idea, which you and I brainstormed on, um, it was clear at that moment that that was what's going to you know, really help me through that process. So that Rwanda trip, nice you brought it up, actually. Um, so we were... He's got, he's got flashcards, you know. Yeah, I'm holding up things. <laughs> yeah. It was two weeks after your dad passed away. And yeah, we had clothes on him. <laughs> it was two weeks. <laughs> and we had planned this trip a few months in advance. And I remember thinking, you shouldn't come. Um, but you rang up and said you wanted to do it. And what we were going to do was go and work on this project called Project Umbabano, which you had been on previously with your dad. And your dad had played a huge part in setting it up and, and running it. Tell us just a little bit about the project before we get into it. It, it came actually at a point in his life that he really needed. He had he'd lost a business primarily because he was too trusting in people. At the time, uh, the pre- the prime minister of the time uh, was um, focusing on international development and had asked Andrew Mitchell, who was head of the uh, of DFID Department for International Development at the time, to set up a social action project in Rwanda, of which Andrew and um, David Cameron asked my father to um, to also help uh, build this project and they wanted to demonstrate why international development was something that we um, as Brits can be proud of and how we can really give back to a country that was in the rebuilding process but still certainly in need of aid and support and dad threw himself into it and um, he was the heart um, and soul of, of the project and they had hundreds of volunteers who come out each year and they would focus on helping teachers refine their their teaching helping doctors with you know with their gp practices helping sportsmen understand the nuances around the you know the off drive or um you know how to take a penalty kick and how businesses can go about raising money and it was just a a holistic approach to aid of which dad's you know, threw himself into and was the reason why I think why it was such a success and why it still goes on today. And I guess the ironic thing was that he went out there to change the lives of Rwandans and it changed him hugely because he, he fell in love with Africa and um, I think he he fell back in love with with the idea of him giving as much to as many different people as possible, not just people in Europe. Yeah. How, how many years have it been going... Prior to 2011, when we went out together? I think it started 2005, 2006. And how many so times had you gone with your dad? Once, so the yeah. year before. And um, our bond got even closer in that trip because I got it within, you know, 10, 15 minutes of being there and made some lifelong friends. And we we fed off each other. And it was so wonderful for me to see him in his element. And um, I... I look back at those days as some of the happiest because I think he was at his happiest when he was helping people and giving back. And that trip, so I remember our plan originally was we were going to go and do, we were going to teach English for a week and then we were going to teach sports, make sure football and cricket for a week. And I was surprised when you called and said, no, I, I still definitely want to go, given it was two weeks later. And I don't want to be in a classroom, I want to do a week football, a week cricket. 
which is what we ended up doing. It was it was a, a massive success, but for sure a difficult time for you and a difficult time for everyone there. You'd obviously just heard the news. And the feeling that I had was that everyone was so affected by it. And I'd only met your dad a handful of times, two or three times, I think. And I remember feeling that I'd just, I'd missed out, basically. I'd missed out on really getting to know this extraordinary man whose lives, both the Brits and the volunteers there and the Rwandans, he'd affected so much. What, what were your memory of that particular trip? Because it was so soon after. I think we had a really good time. I mean, I, um, I will... It was just strange to say that because um, I guess probably it hadn't sunk in and a lot of the trip was, you know, people saying nice things about my old man and laying, you know, wreaths and planting trees and, you know, a lot of it was um, which he would have hated about him. But I will, you know, I'll never forget you naively giving me akabanga, uh, which is um, about 10 times as spicy as uh, Tabasco sauce and um, us playing rock, paper, scissors and you losing. And we agreed that I would squirt one drop into your mouth so you naively and ignorantly handed me this full <laughs> bottle of akabanga and just believed or trusted in your friend that he would only honestly squeeze one drop of Tabasco. I then proceeded to squeeze the best part of half a bottle of this stuff into your mouth. And it was wonderful, actually. I wish I had it with me um, more because, you know, you didn't say anything for an entire afternoon. It was... Um, your face was <laughs> something special. Did you have to snort a line of it? Or did, uh, did, did, yeah, did, did, I think I had some... Yeah. Uh, I got my comeuppance or whatever the word I'd love is, to but... be able to say that I did that because you were having a tough time just to put a smile <laughs> on your face because that's the sort of friend I am. No, you're just too trusting. I was trusting. Yeah. That was a huge cock off of my um, But yeah, it was a good... It was a good trip and it was, a, it was an honour to a great man. And I... I loved learning and I still love learning and it's amazing what you do learn if you keep asking questions about about you know people who are no longer here and it's it's also interesting when you're you know when you're a son or a mother or a father um, and you're you're learning about your son or your or your mother or your father you know your close family um, you you think you know them and you know them very well but you only know one side of them you don't know the you know the the mentor or the you know the uh, the sort of close political ally or the uh, the different sides of them, I guess, that um, you learn on a trip like that. And I'm still on this journey and I still learn so much about him. And that's um, that's how you keep a relationship, I think. I think that's something that almost everyone I've spoken to about this has agreed, that hearing stories about their dad, or the one that they've lost, that they weren't aware of before, just collecting these stories from all different angles, different people that knew over their lives, has been such a therapeutic and happy way to maintain that memory and keep them keep them alive mm -hmm. almost everyone's mentioned that exact thing yeah I think um, I think that's why um, I'd encourage people who are who are going through this or um, know people who are going through this to to talk to people and if you're going through it to ask questions and you know be be happy to learn about them through other people's eyes and really sort of go out there uh, with an open mind and um, uh, you know try and speak to people who you perhaps wouldn't normally speak to about your father or your mother and you know if you've got a friend or a, another half who's going through this to to try and find ways to rather than not talk about it actually talk about it you know find your moment um, you know don't don't talk about it every day or you know even every week but 
you know, when the opportunity presents itself, because you've seen someone with a mannerism that's similar or you've seen someone who's got a, um, a similar, um, you know, facial expression or turn of phrase or, um, you know, just, you know, you're sitting in a, in a bar and you think, oh, you're, you know, your dad would really like that or your mum would really like that. Those sorts of things demonstrate that you, that you understand how much it means to the other person and that you might not fully understand what they're going through, but you're supportive because it's common, I think, for people to avoid talking about it because they don't want to either feel uncomfortable themselves or to put you in a position where you're thinking about it. But frankly, in the early stages, you're always thinking about it. So actually, it it makes you feel like you're in the real world again when you're talking about it rather than just thinking about it to yourself. That was something Hugo said in the last episode. He said, whenever any of their family tell a story about their dad, it's always happy. It's never tell a story and then, oh, sad, that's not here. It's yeah. always happy. It's also him and his brother in particular, he said, use it almost as a trump card in an argument. He's an exchange, bring out a dad's story, everything's cool. Well, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they thought they saw the dad at Lord's. Yeah. And, like, he looks exactly like dad, he's dressed like dad, we're sat behind him, they're all sending photos to each other. Like, maybe this has all been a massive hoax. And he's come back <laughs> yeah. and he's gone back to Lord's where he was a member <laughs> in the worst ploy ever to come back and trick everyone. Um, but yeah, is, is it always happy? Is it always... Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um, so there's no downsides to it. No, even if you're talking about, um, you know, we, we sometimes laugh about um, the only argument that I ever saw mum and dad have, which, um, as you alluded to in, <laughs> in your um, uh, intro, was very much related to the tongue piercing episode. Sure. And um, even that, you know, it gets turned into something funny because um, you realise that it's... Um, it's so it's so important to remember them in, in, in the good in the good ways and it's amazing how many good times you've had and actually if you were to sit down and try and regurgitate them then you wouldn't but something something always sort of tees you off and you go down down a different um, tangent and it's amazing the stories especially for someone like my old man but I'm sure you know every son would say that about their father but the amount of stories that come out of, of his life, I think, is um, is testament to how outrageous and you know willing he was to not take himself too seriously. For sure. Well, the stories you told me that he told you about his time in the army are not appropriate. Unbelievable stories. Don't worry, hey, we've got some time. So. <laughs> um, one of my memories of that trip was the significance that music played mm. in your grieving process. I know mm. that it was something he was passionate about, not only in, in going to Glastonbury and festivals, but also he was amassing this enormous iTunes collection. How many <laughs> songs did he have on iTunes? Oh, it was so painful. He had about 84,000, I think, when he died. And the target was 100? He, yeah, he paid for them all, which yeah. much to the annoyance of my mother. Um, <laughs> that actually wasn't the cause of the fight, but um, it, it probably could have been. You know, that was back in the days where you pay 99p for a song. Yeah. You know, and he sort of go around every single person's house grabbing all these CDs and spent hours just burning CDs. And then you couldn't help but love the irony, primarily because I can... I desperately wish I could have teased him about this, because probably a year after he passed away, iTunes came out with a 999 membership for all the songs in the world. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. His life's work, I say his life's work, a part of his um, life's work was just completely down the drain. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he loved music because it helps you connect with people and it was a way for, you know, like you listen to Desert Island Disc, you, it's a way for people to um, to tell different stories about their life. 
you know, I still use it as therapy. I, whenever, whenever I am having a bad day, I go and run and listen to songs that he used to play, you know, loudly to annoy neighbours and to, you know, just you know have a good time. And um, he, it was a, it was a lat, it was sort of a, a later passion in his life, which became very. It, it sort of caught on with our family, and we used to go to so many gigs and. He would sort of drive to pick me up from school, blaring Kanye West out the door, which is just <laughs> so embarrassing. Um, but you know, he loved it. Yeah, I remember. I remember there were certain songs that I overheard you listening to over and over again during that trip. Whether it was before going to sleep or in the back of the car, whatever it was, and I'm sure they must have made you as sad as they did keep the memory of him. These, oh, he played this song to piss off names, or he pissed off or you turn off the school playing this song. What, in your head, were those songs doing? And what was the purpose of you listening to those songs? Because they must have made you feel sad. Yeah, sad. 100%. I think music has that role anyway, mm. because, um, you know, usually an artist is conveying um, their own feelings and they're being vulnerable through, through a medium that um, I think is a very powerful way to convey feelings and... You know, listening to songs like "Fix You" by Coldplay, um, Barry and my Coldplay were were playing at Glastonbury on that Saturday night, and it's about someone who, you know, wants to fix their their parents and um, isn't able to. I listen to that regularly, especially when I'm running. And if you ever see me running like a hooligan down the street when the uh, when the drop comes in, then uh, you'll know why because it is um, it's therapy, I think, because. It makes you realise you're not the only person going through what you're going through. I think that's a really important lesson because it's very easy to be self-absorbed and angry with the world and um, to do poor me when you're going through something like that. And frankly, you know, you need to appreciate that it's death's a part, part of life. And, you know, frankly, for most of us, we've been down a pretty good hand and um, there are people who are much less well off than you. So I think music serves as a, as a, as a way to remember that and... You know, listening to the songs that he particularly loved and um, that we shared uh, affinities for, it yeah, it brings back memories and you can you feel closer to them. And I think that's the goal for a lot of the grieving process is you you want to feel close to them and you know, as your friend said, maybe feel like it hasn't happened and maybe sometimes that can be counterproductive. Um, and I think I probably wanted to hold on for too long and it's probably held me back. But it's everyone goes on their own journey and. I am, as of two, three weeks ago, finally now saying goodbye. Although it's not goodbye, you're just sort of trying to finally realise that it has happened and um, it's time to, uh, you know, to make sure that it doesn't hold you back any longer. Yeah. I think that idea of not accepting poor me anymore is something that your mum in particular was so inspiring about. And that was, seemed to be very much approached. I want to talk about her now. Because I'm sure that if, if we asked a hundred of her friends to describe her in three words, no doubt the words funny, generous and smart would pop up. But... About my mother? I would say this. Really? Well, yes. Funny. But I would say the word that would... Yeah, that funny little way for sure. But the, <laughs> Most people say scary. Well, scary. Yeah, I'm not going to say that though. Your words aren't mine. But I'd say the, the word that... <laughs> Why would you say scary on your piece of paper? <laughs> Why say scary on my chest? Yeah. I'd say the word that would, that would pop up the most, I'm sure, would be the word strong. Yeah, um, for sure. 
And uh, this strength is not something that's come as a result of your dad passing away. There's no doubt that she was strong mm. long before him. For sure. And was no doubt one of the things that he would have fallen in love with. Mm-hmm. What are the other things, Ed? That, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> that was the main thing. Um, but uh, I'm sure, yeah, in terms of her being sort of the stalwart or the, the head of the family at that time, yeah, and her being the character that she is and being as strong as she certainly is, mm-hmm. must have been helpful for the rest of your family, your brothers and sisters, to be able to look at her as, as a leader in this, in this difficult time. What, what was she like at the time? Phenomenal. Um, I think she's always been a very resourceful woman who um, has never done poor me. She, age 16, she um, left school. We tease her and say she was expelled. She doesn't agree with that. Let's maybe strike that from the record because I'll probably get it in the neck for saying that. <laughs> I was going to say, um, I'm not the balls to tease her. <laughs> But she moved to London when she was 16, was living in a house with three or four other people, got a job um, at Harrods doing many pennies and fast forward 10 years and she's running a big property firm on Lots Road and one of the only women uh, you know, in a boardroom and um, you know, controlling business that was um, you know, far bigger than she ever thought she would um, be, you know, be in charge of. And I think that's testament to her strong exterior. She's incredibly soft inside, but lots of people don't see that. And well, I say that lots of people do see it because she's generally the most altruistic person I know. I mean, a lot of sons would say that about their mothers, but I challenge you to, to find a woman that um, is so happy to put others before herself, um, probably to her detriment because she's always firefighting and picking up the pieces of someone that's going through tragedy and it was it was so I was so lucky to have someone like that who would indulge you when you were doing poor me and you know although there are moments when you're you know you're worried about them and you you sort of you're focused more on them than you're focused on your your siblings or yourself she was so strong for all of us for for the first six months and you know building the house and really sort of being strong and um, I guess doing everything that my father would want and it was such a lesson to me to um, you know just get on with it and um, yeah feel sad and you know grieve but also don't don't try and change the world just because when I say change the world I mean don't get angry with the world for the way it's treating you because frankly it's not it's not helpful and um, it's not all about you yeah, I'll never forget when we... So we went to Lamy for your birthday, so that was September, three, four months after your dad passed away. And I remember having a, a conversation with your mum, which just always stuck with me, when she said, without a doubt, there are days when all I want to do is crawl under my duvet and cry all day. And I've had those days. But those days are doing no one any good. I can't help my family. I can't be good to anyone if I have those days. So I've just got to buckle up and get on with it. And I remember thinking, God, that is... I'm not surprised that she said it. She's exactly the sort of person who say that. Mm. But I remember just feeling blown away at how clear-minded she was so soon after he passed away. Mm. She just knew, right, now I've got to be the head of this family and I'm going to be strong for the kids. They're going to be looking to me. This is the role I'm going to play. Mm. I'm going to get on with it. It was less to all of us, I think, and astounding how she managed to do it. And she's a remarkable woman who... I think should have a similar sort of number at her funeral because she's so fantastic in her own in her own way and it was 
it was interesting because they were the perfect couple because they complemented each other and she got a lot of her confidence from him and losing him I think obviously took a lot of that confidence away and yet she's now blossomed into someone with as much if not more confidence because of how she sort of came through that problem and I just I can't have more respect for a human being than I do for my mother yeah well I think that bit you said about her having the soft soft on the inside is the exact reason that I find her funny in that she <laughs> when you meet her you'd think she's very serious and driven and then actually there is this immature silly childish sense of humour which you've got and which your dad certainly have mm. which comes out and when you see that from someone serious it's all the sweet like, oh, <laughs> yeah. she's on one here yeah yeah it's so true I mean um, god forbid if you ever get a water pistol in our house because she is always lethal yeah. and yeah, she's it's, the sort it's, of mum that lets water pistols in the house which is definitely more chilled than yeah 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 mums. for sure mate. it's not just let in it's encouraged yeah. um, and I mean, she's poured, she's filled pans of water and just thrown it over me in the kitchen before. Yeah. And she's just like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure if there was a manual for what parents should do to their kids, that is not in it. Yeah. But that's what keeps, you know, makes life interesting. And it's interesting to see that side of her, I think, because it doesn't happen as often as, um, as we'd like, but I guess it makes those events all the more sweeter because it's just so unpredictable. Definitely. And it's worth saying at this stage that true to your dad's wish she has remarried yep. and she seems incredibly happy and and things go well yeah, she's yeah it's amazing it's fascinating actually to see she's had three husbands which um, she will not be pleased that I've just you know uh, <laughs> disclosed but they were all starkly different and I think what's so interesting especially is the last two and I think that shows that um, love is not um it's not, I don't think we have one person for us. Um, I think we find people who, who make us whole and who, who make us realise that we can be better with somebody else than by ourselves and sort of one and one equals three rather than two. And, you know, my dad was a former army officer turned, uh, you know, political speechwriter and advisor who you know was uh, run a few PR businesses and a philanthropist and a very outgoing gregarious extrovert and an amazing public speaker and my mum is now married to a very talented artist who and bear in mind my father genuinely burnt toast and was the least creative man I mean seeing him paint was just offensive and you know, she mum's now married to an artist who is, you know, not um, anywhere near as loquacious or extroverted, but deeply kind and charming and wonderful and Welsh. Which um, you know, they certainly share things in common, but they're very different people. But it's I'm indebted to David for how he has transformed my mum's life, and um, I'm so lucky to have him, you know, as part of our family. Oh, he's a wonderful dream of a man. I remember him saying, we went to Rwanda this year to open the cricket stadium, which we'll talk about later on, but I remember we were sitting at dinner on the last night and all of your family were there and everyone obviously made speeches about, about your dad. And somebody turned to him, I was sitting next to him, whoever was on the other side of him turned to him and said, oh, this must be really difficult for you. And tonight's all about Christopher and Nicky's married Christopher. And he said, not at all. 
he goes, I am deeply in love with Mickey. And she was deeply in love with Christopher. I celebrate and love the fact this is all about Christopher. Mm. So that is such a special man to yeah, have that view. Yeah, remarkable. And um, there are moments where I sort of look at, at him when mum's speaking about him or, you know, I probably didn't give it as much thought as I should have done during that trip and think, you know, that it was difficult for him. But that's probably testament to the fact that he'd never given us a reason to think something like that. And you're right, remarkable is the word because he's been nothing but supportive and I love him for it. Although your um, your dad's love of Africa was definitely, it was a fire that was already burning, Rwanda helped, mm. but in my opinion, surely it started in Kenya. Mm-hmm. You've got this beautiful house in, in Kenya called Scuttle, which you've got tattooed on you. And, uh, Thanks for trying that. Oh, yeah. And I know it's somewhere that for sure it seems from an outside point of view to have been your dad's happy place. Mm-hmm. It's where you guys went on family holidays mm-hmm. and where he went on walks on the beach and collected all sorts of weird sticks and crap to put in the house, which yeah. he loved. Mm-hmm. And we went there in September, as I said, soon, up, soon after he passed away, which I'm, I'm sure must have been a difficult trip then, but I'm sure every trip since must have a strange mix of being therapeutic and bring up memories of him. I know there's photos of him everywhere there. Mm. And also difficult that this is a place that we shared wonderful times together. Mm. What's, it, what's it like getting up there? Um, it's interesting because our house at home, which mum built afterwards, has no memories of him walking around, which I think is really good. And I find it really difficult there, to be honest, and I still do, because the family dynamic has never been the same since he passed away. And I think, um, you know, losing someone like that who really was the life and soul is a difficult thing to to replace and those sorts of those sorts of events Christmas New Year where it was you know synonymous with him being the life and soul it's difficult because you're trying to replicate that sort of happiness and it's just not possible to get back to that sort of place so strangely I find it harder than most places and we keep going back but I don't think I can resonate with it as much as my other family members because it was you know such a big part of his life and um, it was such a, a, a wonderful time in mine and I kind of feel like that part of me is, is yet to be fully cured. Yeah I can't, I can't imagine do you, well, do you think that your brother and sister and mum are further along the process in dealing with it so have better time there? Or do you think that they... Have you spoken about them about it? Have you said to them, are you struggling to come back here in the way that I am? Is that a conversation you guys have had? Um, no, we haven't had that conversation. Um, I don't know him. It's... Uh, I think mum has moved no, I don't know it's I've never really given it much thought to be honest with you and I think that um, yeah. yeah I don't know man okay. look I recently wrongly assumed that you'd gone through some therapy at the time because you seemed so knowledgeable about grief itself mm-hmm. I remember you telling me that this was this is now the anger stage or this is the regret stage did you just call me knowledgeable 
No, I would never call you not sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, damn. I did call you not sure. Did, Even yeah. saying nice things at the beginning sort of felt weird and wrong. Yeah. I felt like saying, this is Albie, bit of a prick, this will be dull, and then go over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's so great is it's not even in writing, you know, this is actually something I can keep for the rest of my life. I know, I regret that now. I really <laughs> regret saying that. But yeah, knowledgeable about grief. I can give you that. Knowledgeable about life, you're way off. Knowledgeable about grief, you seem to be. But yeah, I remember you saying, this is the stage, you know, this is part of the grief process, I'll be angry now and then I'll have this regret. And I thought perhaps that had come from the fact that you had seeked therapy at the time, which mm-hmm. I now know you hadn't. Mm-hmm. Were those stages of grief, which you obviously read or learned or told about, were they accurate? Was there a method to it? Is there a journey or was it random and completely different for everyone? Definitely um, completely different for everyone. I think there are some sequence, there are some uh, stages, uh, but I think you hit them in different points and it's not as if you are, oh, well, you deal with one and then you move on to the next, you know, it's not progressive in that, in that way, which I think is frustrating when you're looking for meaning and you're looking for process and you're looking for ways to deal with it. I think, yeah, everyone deals with it in a different way and everyone's on their own journey. And, um, you know, there's, there's certainly acceptance, there's certainly anger. And I think there's a, you know, there's multiple stages and some people go through different stages at different speeds than others. But for me, the most important thing, which I'm learning a lot recently about, is to encourage vulnerability and to encourage, you know, being open about, the fact that you perhaps are still, you know, struggling with parts of it and not being embarrassed by the fact that it's seven years later or, you know, that you're depending on your friends just to hear you out and say, listen, you know, I'm, I'm still struggling in some ways because every single person is, is vulnerable in, a, in, in their own way and actually not voicing it to your friends um, defeats the purpose of having friends. It's, you know... I still I still rarely talk about it, but it it's important for me to acknowledge to myself and therefore to the um, to the world that there are days which you know are still difficult, but everyone has difficult days. So I guess the most important thing that I've learned from it is that we all just need to be more supportive and more vocal about some of the the bad days because um, you know, as I say, that's what friends are for. Is it easier to talk about it with someone who's also been through it? Or is it just, I find it easier to talk to these particular friends or these particular members of family? Yeah, I think, you know, the the sort of dead dads club, the dead parents club uh, certainly exists. And you feel like people get it. You have this intuitive or sort of subconscious connection to people because you you resonate with what they're going through. And it doesn't matter whether they their parents had cancer or, you know, they died in a car crash or you know, in a, in, a, in a different situation than, than the one you went through, for some rhyme or reason, there is some way or some reason why you can connect to these people. And I think it's it's important to connect to them to make you realise that, listen, lots of other people are going through this, you're not alone, the, the feelings of anger or denial or frustration or you know, misery or whatever it might be, those are all natural feelings and that's... Um, or not, um, you're not the only one who's who's struggling. And yeah, I'd love to find a way to get those people all together more often because um, it's certainly been very helpful to me to to chat to people who have have gone through that. And there's a book actually called A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, which perfectly epitomizes that thought. He was a Holocaust survivor 
who found meaning and satisfaction and joy when he was in the most dark place on the planet. And it makes you realise that being present and appreciating that you're going through something and yet being able to appreciate the good things in life and what you're what you're lucky for and grateful for is it's a very important part of life and I highly recommend anyone who's who's struggling with this or knows someone who is to to recommend that book to to people because it's a it's a fascinating read. So there's there's a woman out in Australia I think I've maybe mentioned in every episode so far who had an incredibly difficult time in that she lost a husband and a son in quite close uh, time frame. And she said one of the ways that she dealt with it was to read every book, watch every film about grief or something similar, and to talk to everyone. If she overheard a conversation, she said she was like a, like a uh, what's it, moth to a light, is that it? Is moth that to a flame. Sure, I always get this wrong. But like a moth to a flame, but would want to engage in conversation with them. And I think it's true that even if people struggle to talk to friends about it, mm-hmm. there is you know a wealth of material you can read or watch, or maybe it's easy to talk to a stranger who's mm-hmm. gone through the same thing. I find, yeah, reading all this stuff can be helpful, but it depends on what phase you're in. And I, I remember feeling quite frustrated with you know being forced into, or people sort of sending me articles and saying, right, yeah, yeah, you know, go through this and. You've got to be ready to do that sort of thing. And that's why I say everyone's on a journey. Interestingly, I met someone in Rwanda on that very trip that you and I went on who said it took me it took me seven years. And I thought it was a very strange, specific time span. And seven years to get over it or yeah. seven years to read material? Now? To fully enjoy life again right. and to um, not only accept it, but also embrace it and not let it define you, I think was what she said. And... It is seven years for me this year, yeah. and I finally feel like I'm about to turn the corner, which is um, hugely exciting. Also slightly scary because you're saying goodbye to that chapter of your life, uh, but I don't want it to define me anymore, and that's um, an exciting prospect. But to your point about reading stuff, I think, interestingly, I really try to help people who are going through it because... I know what it's like to feel like no one understands and the anger of the fact that you can't really find people who are going through what you're all going through and the frustration that people don't know what you're going through. And it's amazing how easy it is to be helpful just by understanding, you know, saying how are you today and emphasising empathy and just basic understanding, which is, you know what, I don't know, I didn't know your father or mother or sister or girlfriend, but I am here for you because I know you're going through something. And if you want to listen, if you want me to listen, I'll listen. If you want my advice, then I'll give you advice. But I just want you to know that I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm here for you. And I think, um, yeah, it's a very easy way to, to be helpful. And what this podcast is effectively about is looking for pieces of advice like that, which we as friends someone going through this can, can take and just from what you said there asking how are you today rather than how are you seems a big one maybe sending these articles and books and saying read this when you're ready mm-hmm. keep it and then yeah just as you said I'm here for you maybe you need me there seems to be three yeah top pieces of advice for a friend who's... 100% I think also um, you know just put a calendar reminder in your, um, in, your in your calendar for their father's birthday or their um, uh, 
uh, or Father's Day or something, and just you know that one text on a Father's Day, you know I don't I um in the in the year or two or three or four years afterwards, sending that is such a lovely thing to to receive, and it's um you know it's just it takes ten seconds, and um you know I don't think you should be doing it for you know after three or four years or, or whatever you you know whatever you feel that comes naturally to you, but um, I don't think that's something you can expect, um, nor be obviously frustrated if people don't text you and say that. But I think it's something something that I've taken from it. And if I could give any advice to any friends who have friends going through that, it's a really easy way just to show you understand. This podcast, I said, was specifically about what was said or done by your friends to help you during those difficult times. But before I really get into that, what I want to talk about is how... You weren't about helping yourself. Because unlike most people who lose a parent, your dad passed away with, well, two really unfulfilled dreams. One was build this house in Oxfordshire, which your mum since did. Mm-hmm. And the second was to build Rwanda, its first ever cricket stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, what about three things? That, that, yeah, true, that one. Which, um, no, let's not ask that question. <laughs> um, I have no doubt that you saw that as a, as a tangible opportunity to give something back to your dad to make this dream come true. Mm-hmm. And he passed away in July, was it June? June, July? June. June 2011. And in August 2011, you and your family set up the Rwandan Cricket Stadium Foundation, uh, which aimed to raise over a million pounds and build, build the stadium. So could you tell us a little bit about that charity and more specifically the effect it had on your family to be able to work together on something that you, your dad had dreamed of? Sure. Um, if you're still listening to this podcast after 45 minutes, then um, you are um, quite sad. You've got way too much time. That. <laughs> um, That's exactly the sort of listener I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah. Then you must be a friend of Hayes. <laughs> um, the charity, yeah, it was set up in Dad's memory. Um, he was inspired by how um, cricket was playing a role in the healing process and how a country that was colonised by the Belgians... And after genocide, because the Mitterrand government had played an instrumental role in arming the Hutu militia, the Inter-Haramwe, that ended up slaughtering uh, a million people in uh, 90 days, they then decided to, to change the curriculum from, Anglophone, sorry, from Francophone to Anglophone and uh, became a member of the Commonwealth. And it was for those reasons that cricket became part of the... Uh, the story of the country and because it wasn't around before the genocide it wasn't damaged by what happened during the genocide and dad couldn't believe that when he went to Rwanda cricket was not only on the agenda but was so popular and how the stories of the people were playing they felt that it was a wonderful way for them to learn English it was a wonderful way for them to uh, find some enjoyment in life and it was a wonderful way for them to come together and to realize they are Rwandan and they're not defined by the divisions of the past and it was the, those three elements and the fact finally that he had watched me playing with these people and established a connection with them that was so authentic and natural and heartfelt and our shared journey on understanding where they had uh, come from you know not forgetting that lots of these people were refugees after the genocide who then come back to the country and were now playing on this cricket pitch where two and a half thousand people were killed during the genocide and them saying their field of dreams was 
a new stadium that had no, no connotations of the past, that was a platform to grow the game, that was an HIV centre, a community a community centre and a way a way to um, to emphasise and empower and improve the amount of good that this game could do in a country like Rwanda. And he made a few phone calls. He had the bit between his teeth. He was inspired to make a difference and he was going to dedicate a lot of his time to raising the money and to building the stadium. Now, do I think we built something that was probably slightly more advanced than what was in his head perhaps um but we have built something thanks to um you know friends and family and yorkshire tea and surrey cricket club and amazing patrons like heather knight and brian lara and michael vaughan and david cameron you know we've built a stadium that is now hosting international cricket matches it's testing people for hiv it is a platform to grow a game that is having a huge impact on thousands of people's lives and it's a great testament to my father and the vision that he had but more importantly it is given some support to an authentic means for for healing in Rwanda. Yeah I remember during those years of fundraising I'll never forget your determination that we ran a marathon together in 2012 um, which I remember you feeling like you'd undertrained for, and then you we t- you took us on this world record of doing a twenty six hour cricket net, which no one had ever done. So God knows how you trained for it. And I remember people say, "Oh, do you think we'll make it?" And I remember thinking, "Actually, I'll be doing anything for RCSF in his dad's memory. You can't fail because he will not give up." Mm. And then you got, got you became project manager. And you lived out in Rwanda during the last two years, and that just sort of carried on. I mean, Whatever there are so many obstacles in building that stadium, and I just knew that it would it would happen. There was really nothing to worry about because your drive, when your passion was that, was unstoppable. And I know that the day that we eventually opened the stadium it was without a doubt one that I know it's the happiest day of your life and all of your family's life. And I, I imagine it felt hugely therapeutic to have built it and to have done it as a family and, and made this dream a reality. Was that the case? What was that? What was that day like? Oh, phenomenal euphoria! Um, you know, I will look back at that moment dancing on that uh, pitch with you as just a life-defining, life-affirming moment. And uh, you know, considering you've just called me knowledgeable, I think it's only appropriate that um, I repay um, you know the compliment and say that. You're not all bad, Hen. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> seriously, um, mate, I couldn't thank you enough for everything you did. It was um, beyond the call of duty and you raised a phenomenal amount of money. And when you put your clothes back on, I will um, you know, thank you <laughs> from the bottom of my heart for everything you did. That's very sweet and unnecessary to say, but I appreciate it. Um, I can, yeah, I can remember where I was where I got the news about your dad. I, I was playing cricket um, perhaps significant as it was a sport he loved so much. That's quite ironic. And I was about to go out to bat and somebody told me on the, on the boundary and then the guy got out and I had to go in. And distracted by the news, is my excuse, go and my, my, my <laughs> head wasn't really in the game and I got out to an 11-year-old spin bowler. <laughs> what a wonderful excuse. I know that is something that your dad would have found quite funny <laughs> and you definitely found funny. And it's not the first time. No, true, true, true. I, I always get out to 11-year-old spin bowlers. That's sort of the catch. Not go out with 11-year-olds, just... <laughs> yeah, the truth, I get that wrong. <laughs> but yeah, I think that my reaction to it 
in terms of what to say to you was perhaps typical how most of us react. And in hindsight, I think I probably could have done more. In that I think I sent a text telling you how sorry, sorry I was and that I was thinking of you and praying for you and your family and that I was here if you wanted to, to mm-hmm. talk. And I'm sure that you would have received hundreds of similar messages to mine at that time. What I wanted to really know is, are there any specific things that were said or done by any friends or family members at that time or in the in the, in the next few months? It's interesting. The, um, the moments afterwards are actually, obviously they're raw, but they're some of the, the easier ones on, you know, if the, if the journey is, you know, let's say five years or, or seven years in, in, in my case, um, the, the three, four months afterwards are, are certainly not the hardest because people are talking about him. People are, you know, we had 10, 15 friends descend on the house and live there generally for three and a half weeks. I've never eaten as good food in my entire life. It was great. And, you know, it's still strange to say that, but, you know, we had, we had some great parties. We had uh, some wonderful food and some celebrations of, of his life. And that's, um, you know, that's a great way to keep keep them alive. And when that finishes and you try and get back to normality, that's when it gets really difficult. And so I was never angry with anyone for the way that they approached dealing with it because we were 20 years old. You know, we, um, um, like, you know, if I was, if, if it happened to you, I'd like to think I would have stood up to the plate and, you know, been as good a friend to you as you have been to me. However, I think, you know, you saying that you didn't feel that you did a good enough job in the in the early days is is not correct because everyone everyone did what they felt was the right thing to do at the time. And you're expecting people to understand and to use their intuition based on something they've never ever been through. And so it's it's a very difficult time for everybody because everyone is trying to, you know, work out this new reality. There are a few people, like Joe Richards, for example, who just went beyond the call of duty. You know, it was it wasn't just the nice text messages and you know a phone call. It was sending things, silly things, but just sort of things that would brighten up your day and make you realise that you know life was still worth living. And it was godmothers and godfathers that would just call regularly and you know indulge your poor me which frankly we all do do sometimes and um, even mum would admit she has had moments where she's indulged it because you need to because you need to get the monkey off your back and embrace that vulnerability I think the key thing is just listening and making the other person feel like you are listening and you're willing to listen no matter how dark a side they show you it's funny hearing you then it's very similar to what Georgie said in my first episode about how the first, she said six months, mm. were actually wonderful. She, she said it felt like Christmas every day because everyone was over for dinner, we ate beautiful food. Mm. And then piece of advice that I remember noting down during that episode, she said after six months, people sort of, it's not people's agenda or they assume it's, it's been long enough, whatever it is, yeah. there's a drop off of attention. Yeah. And then she was like, that's when you need people to call, that's when you need people to get in touch. Yeah. Because that's when it goes quiet and then that's when you sort of accept it and... It's not this weird, non-real world reality when it's just sort of everyone's throwing in being wonderful to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she said, set a, set a six-month timer yeah. and be on it then. That's when everyone else will drop off, really. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the only thing I'd add to that is that you cannot 
the biggest mistake you can make is someone going through that is to expect the world or to expect people to do things and hope that they do things or to you know to show olive branches because it's it's not the right approach to life to expect other people are going to help you solve something that frankly you can only solve by yourself and also yeah people will surprise you and that was wonderful to to see how they did and I guess the the scary thing is is that you are the only person that can truly go about solving it and people can help you along the way but it's a very solo a solo journey and you know people need to be prepared for that but I think it also built it grows you know it it's a it's a wonderful way to grow as a person and to appreciate something that is just a way of life and um you know, I go back to the fact someone said it was the best and worst thing that ever happened to me. It's definitely the worst, and I certainly wouldn't describe it as the best, but it's, it makes you have a much stronger exterior, which I think is important in life because, um, you know, we're only here in the, you know, for a short time, and it makes you, you realise, yeah, it's worth living every day and enjoying every moment and loving more and being happy and giving and... You know, just um, enjoy life because it can be taken away like that. Absolutely. So wonderful seeing you at this state now. I know that you've recently started therapy and you described it as being almost becoming as addicted to it as you, as you can be. And your words. And <laughs> finally able to get this monkey off your back in a way. Yeah. And do you feel that way? And, and why do you think you waited this long to be able to do it? Do you, do you think you weren't ready or you're just a, you're trying it out of pot luck and it happened to be... No, it certainly wasn't potluck. I've had some stomach issues for a couple of years that I've been trying to sort out and I feel like I've done everything, but it's come to light recently that it is physical issues which have, or emotional issues which have manifested itself in uh, physical issues, which is something I don't really like to acknowledge because it shows real weakness. But Rwanda was a coping mechanism and opening it was, um, I guess... The, I felt that when I when when it opened, it was just you know a, a wonderful way to put all of that behind me and just move on seamlessly with my life and not you know really reflect and um, indulge some of the feelings and frustrations and you know those thoughts about whether or not he actually did know he was ill have plagued my subconscious for so long and Rwanda was a wonderful way to distract myself from actually dealing with those and processing those thoughts and after. The stadium opened. I kind of felt that, or hoped that, my stomach issues would, uh, you know, would be solved, and they weren't. And so I was forced to go down a rabbit hole and consider being vulnerable and doing what, you know, is deeply stigmatised and against the the common understanding of what a British man should be, and go into a room with a complete stranger and talk about um, in great detail that day at Glastonbury and um, some of the anger and frustration that I felt towards my father and the feeling of feeling deeply petrified of saying goodbye because you just you know how could you or will you know why would you want to say goodbye what does that even mean you know people like have you dealt with this I don't know still don't know what that means Mm. and so yeah it's been a I've been doing it for four weeks now and I'm loving it because I can see myself changing and growing as a person. I think that's the goal of life is to constantly improve and to grow. And I can feel myself changing again. And it's scary, but also, you know, I feel alive and I feel truly ready now to 
be thankful for what I had, but also not to let it define me and to take him off a pedestal, realize he was a wonderful man, but he had flaws like the rest of us. And I, I feel like it is weeks, not months before I am totally 100% healed. I'll never forget him and I'll never be sad that he's not around, but um, I'm no longer going to let it define define who I am or where I'm going. That is, without a doubt, the best way to possibly finish this interview. I would normally ask you two questions, but you very much answered them. The first would have been, um, what advice would you give someone who's lost a parent? Mm-hmm. Which I think you sort of covered in a way. Yeah. Unless you want to add anything else. Um, talk to Haim. Okay, sweet. <laughs> you can put the card down there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll get my 20 pay 50 quid for that. <laughs> um, the second was going to be um, what advice would you give to someone whose best friend's just lost a parent? Which again, you, you sort of touched on, but if there's anything else you want to add, feel free. Yeah. Um, I think, I think, yeah. I think we've done it. I think we've done it. Okay, now the skin crawling bit, I'll have to say nice things about you again. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go for a piece, you can say it when I'm not here. Oh, perfect. Yes, he's <laughs> leaving the room, he's leaving the room. That makes it so much easier. He is gone. And what I was going to do, he's probably, yes, he is, he's going to get the door. What I was going to do, Abs, is thank him. Now, I would say thank you, but he's not here, it's just me talking to myself. I was going to thank him for being so thoughtful and insightful and open with that interview. I don't think he kept anything back and I have no doubt that if anyone is listening to this either from a similar position that he's been in as someone who's gone through it himself or someone in my position who's seen a great friend go through it I hope there's plenty of bits of advice which you guys can take with you from that so thank you Albie although he's not here he's currently urinating and thank you all for listening